Broadcasting from Baltimore, Maryland, and all around the world, you're listening to the Stansberry Investor Hour. Tune in each Thursday on iTunes for the latest episodes of the Stansberry Investor Hour. Sign up for the free show archive at InvestorHour.com. Here is your host, Dan Ferris. Hello and welcome to the Stansberry Investor Hour podcast. I'm your host, Dan Ferris. I'm also the editor of Extreme Value, published by Stansberry Research. Where do I begin? How about here? Coronavirus is the biggest thing to happen on planet Earth since World War II. How about that? That's, a, that's not a bad starting point. I can't imagine anyone thinking I'm guilty of hyperbole at this point. I was born in um, 1961, tail end of the baby boomers. And the truth is, my generation has got away with a pretty easy time of it until now. My parents were born in the mid-1920s. They grew up in the Great Depression. My father went to Okinawa at age 17 to fight in World War II and various other things. They had six of their seven kids to take care of in the 1970s inflation. Remember that period well. Um, and, and they, you know, is it just a different, they grew up in a different world. And they handled a lot of, a lot of really difficult crises for my parents early in their lives, and they're they're still alive to talk about it. But you know, for me, I'm feeling pretty soft. <laughs> you know, I never went to war. A few folks, a few years older than me, were in Vietnam, and and a few years older than them in Korea. You know, I I never went to war. Most of the people I know never went to war. And we certainly just have never had, you know, World War II was, was a true world war all over the globe. And that's a different way of living and thinking about how the world works than when we're not in such circumstances. And I feel like this global pandemic of the coronavirus is reteaching us what it's like to live in a time like that. And just a few thoughts about this whole thing. First of all, I have to uh, say that I was caught in some intellectually questionable territory by a listener, a fellow who we're, we're going to have on the program soon, in fact. Last week, I said that I thought there were two likely scenarios. Either we lock everybody down now and there will be substantial economic pain, or we lock everybody down later and there will be much more pain. And I was clearly saying, you know, the government needs to do something, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. I can't even believe that those thoughts came out of me, but I guess it's a sign of the stress I'm feeling at this time. And I certainly didn't mean to imply that that's the best thing that could happen or the only thing, but I really, I got caught up. And my real viewpoint on this is I'm much more skeptical of the the cries for the government to do something. I really am. And so me calling on, you know, the government needs to do something and shut things down and we need to be like Italy. I don't even know if I said we need to be like Italy, but I, I was, you know, you could easily interpret everything I said like that. I, I don't think I really believe that. And I was called out on it by a, a few people, more than one person. Uh, emailed me and and listened and you know talked to me and said whoa whoa where's all this coming who's this Dan who's this guy and one of them I said I told you was a fellow we're going to have on the program at some point his name is Kevin Duffy and he wrote me an email and he said you know I listened to your latest podcast 
And, you know, you said we have two choices. Pay me now, bite the bullet and hunker down or pay me much later. Live normal lives and let the problem get bigger. And then he said, quote, I'm always suspicious when given a narrow set of options. Is there a third? What would happen if the government said, hey, kids, this time you're on your own? Imagine if they did that during the 2008 financial meltdown. In all likelihood, the initial pain would have been deeper, perhaps much deeper for some. But would the system today be as levered and fragile right before a health-related black swan hit? Alternative histories are difficult. And then he gives me a link to a, a blog post that he did. And you can type Kevin Duffy and you probably type Kevin Duffy blog and go right to it into, into Google. He continues, the issue boils down to the limits of knowledge, a subject any good investor knows well, and the pretense of knowledge, a subject of any critic of central planning knows well, end quote. I totally agree with every word of that. And you know that from listening to this program. Where was, where was like, where was that guy last week when, when like, Big government, Dan, lost it and started saying we need to be like Italy. I don't know. I don't know. I'm a little, I'm shocked at myself right now. And the truth is, my real view is that, you know, when the government has your back, your spine goes limp. You know, that's just the way it is. I think government interference, I think you can go into any major city in the United States and see the cultural decline of inner city and, you know, lower income inner city people purportedly who have been helped by things going even back to Social Security, which was born when? Well, as a result of the Great Depression, right? The Great Depression inspired government to get real, real big and real, real intrusive. And I don't think anything good came out of any of it. And I, t I totally disagree with people like Warren Buffett. Obviously, they're going to be in love with the status quo because they made billions of dollars off of it. So they're going to say Social Security was a wonderful thing. FDIC deposit insurance is a wonderful thing. I don't think any such backstops are wonderful things because they make us weak and fragile. Kevin is absolutely right. Those things make the system weaker and more fragile. And they are there's a drug-like component here because once you do it once, you want to do it again, Right. Remember the big, you know, it was like 800 billion odd, I want to say 850 billion bailout during the financial crisis in 2008. And then, you know, they layered things on top of that. But now what are they talking about? Well, now the headlines say, you know, Trump's asking for 850 billion. No, oh, no, he's asking for a trillion and a quarter. Oh, no, the, the former president of the Minneapolis Fed says, nope, trillion and a quarter is not going to do it. He needs to double it. Two and a half trillion. And we need to send everybody a check for 10 grand. That kind of stuff. Is that going to make us more self-reliant? Is that really going to help us get through this? What is really happening right now? Well, everything is shutting down because we're social distancing so we don't all get sick and kill a whole bunch of people who are in, you know, weaker condition, right? Most of the people who get this thing are just going to get a cold or, or something like it, you know, fever, cold. But you know, it could kill a lot of people if we're careless about it. That's why everything is shutting down. And you can't fix that with any of this stuff. You can't fix it with government intervention. You can't fix it with the Fed buying, you know, their measly 700 billion of securities, which they figured out pretty darn quick is like way, way too little. So... It's a really difficult problem because it can't be solved by – we really have to be on our mettle, don't we? We really have to handle this ourselves.
I mean, I think we'll find out. Even if they do put, you know, a thousand or five thousand or ten thousand bucks cash in everybody's pocket, you know, they're going to go through that real quick. And then what? You know, at some point, you really do have to figure this out for yourself and be self reliant. Now, do I want to leave people in dire straits? Because, you know, at this point, it's like a junkie, right? You're going to take away his, you know, he's in withdrawal now and you're going to take away the smack and he's going to die, right? So it's, I'm not saying there are easy answers here. I'm just saying that I think we got to a much worse place by being too reliant on big government to fill in various perceived or otherwise cracks in our, in our system, in our society, there's an analogy I've used before on this program, right? Imagine that you took all the safety devices out of an automobile, all the airbags and, and the seat belts and everything, and replaced it with a six-inch steel spike coming out of the steering wheel. No, I don't think we should actually do this. What I do think is that it is instructive of how people handle risk. I think if everybody was driving around in a car with no seatbelt, no airbags, and the steel spike, there would not be so much as a fender bender. And there would be a lot of people riding bikes, okay? And they would be a lot more risk-averse is the point. They would, they would teach themselves, and they would learn how to handle risk. And they would not optimize themselves for good times. What we have right now People think they're diversified if they own stocks and bonds, and they're learning that they're nothing like diversified if they own stocks and bonds. You need that cash component. You know, when, when everything else is trash, cash is king. And yet, the government is in charge of the value of cash, aren't they? So you need a gold component, a silver and gold, a precious metal component as well. Then you can tell me that you're truly diversified. Then you can tell me that you're not as fragile as our society has become, right? That's the way it works, and we're finding that out, unfortunately, and it's unfortunate, isn't it? You know, I, I've been like, I've been saying this stuff for three years, and I've even like felt apologetic for it. You've heard me on this program apologizing and saying, look, hey, I'm, you know, I don't want to be the bearish guy all the time, and I, you know, I want to have something good to say. And, and the business I'm in is like that too. Oh, Dan, I'm sorry, you know, bearish messages just aren't really resonating with our readers, and they, you know... Basically, you know, if you want to keep publishing, now nobody told me this, but, but you know, it, it really boils down to the way we bring on new readers. And you can't bring on new readers and get people interested in your message in a bull market by saying, this thing is going to crash hard and you better have a lot of cash and gold on hand. You, you just can't do it. People don't want to hear it. And you know when they want to hear it? They want to hear it when it's too damn late. They want to hear it now. I mean, I, a friend of mine who is, I won't name him, he's been on the program, very sophisticated value investor. He's been one of these guys who says, you know, gold is like, you know, it's a pet rock and I, I don't understand it. And, and I get that, but we're, you know, we're good friends anyway, okay? And, and he called me this morning and he said, oh, I'm sorry, I, you know, I, I didn't realize he woke me up um, because I had been up very late last night unexpectedly. And I, so it was 7 a.m. I was still snoozing and he woke me up and, and to talk about gold. He wants to talk about gold now. It's actually not a bad time because the price has come down. But, but the better time to talk about it would have been 
you know, as fast as this thing has happened two, three months ago, you know, three months ago, and, and, and before, three months, one year, three years, five years, 10 years. So, you know, now here we are, and everybody wants me to comment and talk and say this and say that. And I'm like, look, man, I've been saying how to prepare for when this thing goes out. Now, I didn't, I didn't predict a pandemic that shuts society down. I just predicted that, you know, stocks are going to retreat heavily one day. You know, we're going to be in a bear market. They're way overvalued. It's really risky, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And as it turns out, I believe in my heart of hearts that um, having lots of cash and gold around prepares you for this type of thing, too. You know, in addition to a bear market, it prepares you for a, you know, a shutdown of who knows how much big, important stuff in our lives. So, you know, where are we right now? Well, as I speak to you, I'm getting texts and my wife is calling me from downstairs and she's saying, hey, are you paying attention? Because the market is tanking hard again. And I'm afraid that this is really going to be more, much more brutal than I did a, even a, just a week or two ago. It, it's really, it's, it really has the potential to go on for some time. There's a particular paper running around that says we could be effectively sheltering in place, if not social distancing. We could be social distancing for as much as 18 months. You imagine that 18 months of no restaurants and no, you know, the airlines not functioning right and et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. I read somewhere there's 4.6 million people out of work in the hospitality industry. What are they going to do for the, you know, if this thing goes on really much longer than anyone thinks? And then I have friends who are very smart people and richer and smarter than me saying, I'm buying stocks. One guy says, I'm buy I bought a basket of five airline stocks. This is a fantastic time to be an investor. I'm sorry, I'm not there yet. I'm just not there. Honor your trailing stops if you're if you use them. And whatever risk controls you have, this is not the time to abandon them. And as you're honoring trailing stops, you're raising cash. I think it's still a good thing to have gold. I know gold stocks have been brutalized. Gold itself is down from where it was, but you know, it's not, gold isn't down that much if you look at, you know, the way stocks are getting crushed. And even bonds, we were all hepped up on that bond trade, which worked out great. But then, you know, I started telling you last last week, and maybe even a little before that, uh, this thing is, eventually, it's going to be revealed for what it is, you know, it's it's the obligation of an essentially effectively bankrupt government. So you don't want to be hold, get caught holding it when the world figures that out. Eventually, the world will figure that out. And all this stimulus that creates larger budget deficits and larger balances at the Fed and larger amounts of outstanding debt is bad for the currency. I've said that too the past couple of weeks. The go-to move, the last resort is to weaken the currency. Always. In all times and places, in all eras, that's always the go-to move of the government, right? You look on the side of a dime or a quarter, it has those little hash marks. Well, that's because way back when they were clipping the, the you know, they were shaving the metal off the, off the coins. So, you know, your coin would have a little bit less metal and then a little bit less and a little bit less and a little bit less. So they started doing the hash marks to establish that uh, they hadn't been shaved. Of course, now it's just an aesthetic thing because the coins are just tokens. They're not worth anything, really. 
because they're not made of precious metal. Things seem to be changing rapidly. Life seems to be very different than it was, you know, three months ago, three years ago, 30, 100 years ago, 50 years, any, name your time frame. Life seems to change rapidly. But some things never change. And having lots of cash on hand in whatever era you live in, having lots of cash on hand has frequently been a very good idea. Having gold, you know, the things that never change. Gold's been around for 5,000 years, 6,000 if you count the use of electrum, the alloy of gold and silver that was used in a long time ago. These things don't change. And the things that don't change are what gets you through times like this. And that is, that is where we are. I had one email in the feedback that said, you know, come on, Dan, what's this negative attitude I'm hearing? He said, I've never known you to be so negative. What's up, dude? Come on, get positive. Let's fight this thing together. That was by Ray R. in the feedback. I agree. I agree. There's no reason to have a negative attitude. I hope I don't come across as having a negative attitude. My positive attitude is a respect for reality. I'm trying to respect reality and say, this is where I think we are. I'm afraid it gets a lot worse from here. The second order effect of shutting society down, uh, the second order effect of the, of the virus is this economic effect, which impacts, you know, your investments, it impacts your daily life. And then, you know, there are other third order effects like big government interventions, which come along. And they can be, they can be the worst outcome. You know, we, we, we've never seen a crisis in which people don't clamor for those third order effects. You know, we want more government. We need more intervention. Do something already. Do something, do something, do something. And I'm embarrassed that I seem to be trying to hitch a ride on that train last week. We do need to do something. We do all need to stick together. We do need, we can get through this. Humanity is stronger than one pandemic. And we've proven that, haven't we? Because we've gotten through things like the plague and the Spanish flu, and we're still here. And those things make humanity, they make, you know, they kill people and they show our fragility as individual humans. But as a species, we are quite anti-fragile because we are strengthened by crises. And <laughs> this one, I guess, is going to make us a lot stronger because it's really going to test us and it's already doing that. And I'm praying literally for the first time in decades. I've been, I've been an atheist for years, but literally I was on my hands and knees with my head bowed and my hands folded earlier this week saying, please, if you're out there, man, we get it. <laughs> We're fragile. We don't, need, we don't need any more of this. As you can tell, I'm at a loss. Cash and gold is all I have for you financially. I think bonds are getting hit. They're probably going to continue to do so. And that is all I have. So let's do an interview, man. My old friend, Doug Casey, who I have not spoken with in a few years. See what he has for us today. Then we'll check out the mailbag. And, and I know a lot of people are really concerned and they're writing in. Let's do it. All right, everyone, it's time for our interview. Doug Casey spends most of his time these days in Argentina and Uruguay with frequent visits to the U.S., Canada, and various dysfunctional hell holes. And I have to tell you, folks, that I largely became interested in finance and, and in the business that I've been in for these 22 years 
because of Doug. I wanted to be just like him. And I, wanted, I read his newsletter and I thought, man, this guy's brain is turned on and I want to be like that. And here, and here we all are. So, Doug Casey, welcome to the program, sir. <clears throat> well, thanks, Dan. It's a, uh, it's a pleasure to be here. Although I'm not there, I'm um, speaking to you from uh, an estancia near Punta del Este, Uruguay, where even though the world is collapsing around our head and shoulders, uh, if I turned off the internet and the TV, I'd have no idea anything was different than it was last year. Things move slowly here. That might not be a bad state of mind to, to be in right now. <laughs> No, it's 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 not. It's, it's time it's time for us all to dust off our copies of Boccaccio's Decameron, uh, because we are living in the year of the plague. It would seem, and seem might be the operative word. I don't know. Yeah, you know, I I still have to believe that the second order effects of this coronavirus are going to be much worse than the virus itself, which. You know, for most healthy people, will not really be a problem. If you're older, if you're infirm, if you are, you know, you have some underlying issue, you really don't want to get it. But you don't want to get anything, right? If you're like that, you don't want to get any kind of flu or anything. So I, I, I think the second order effects are going to be worse. You're absolutely correct. And as a matter of fact, uh, I just before we you called, put the finishing touches on an interview that I did, which talks about the second order effects. Uh, the first order effects from this are, uh, you know, there, there have been so many of these um, medical hysterias just in the last generation. There's been hantavirus and Zika and bird flu, swine flu, uh, MERS, SARS. Uh, okay, maybe this one's more serious than those, or the seasonal flu, which kills 50,000 people. But you're quite correct. Uh, it's the second order effects, uh, namely the consequences of the hysteria. And it is a titanic global hysteria, unparalleled, actually. Uh, unparalleled, for all I can think of, since the, since the great witch hunts of the 17th century. Uh, but actually, it's the third order effects that are going to be much longer lasting and equally serious in the long run. And by that, I mean what uh, the governments are doing to react to this, to show that they're doing something. Everybody wants government to do something. They think the government's a magic cornucopia that can solve all their problems. So uh, look out, this is gonna be, this, this is the start of the Greater Depression, uh, Dan. It's, it's the, this, this, um, this plague is, the, uh, is really mainly just the pin that broke the biggest financial bubble in world history. That sounds about right to me. I have to admit, for, for a brief moment, I, I was guilty of saying we need to do something. I was a do-something guy for about 20 minutes last week. And... Uh, and, if, and I'm, I'm pleased to say I have lots of friends like you who instantly called me out on it. People emailed, they called, they said, whoa, 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 who's this guy saying this stuff? And it's true. I really, I fear those third order effects. I fear that you are right and that 
this is, it's transformational in the way that the Great Depression and World War II were transformational. And of course, as you point out, those events, they invite all of the government folks who have this great need to feel relevant and do something to shift it into high gear. And, and it's my fear that, that you're dead on and that's going to happen. Mm, that's right. Uh, it's, it's really a shameful thing. Over the last hundred years, since Western civilization itself uh, peaked just before World War I, and it's been a, a slow but accelerating ride downhill uh, since then in just about every way I can think of, quite frankly, except science and technology, which have actually been advancing at the rate of Moore's Law for all that time and have disguised the uh, rot at the base of our civilization, the termites eating away at our foundations. Um, yeah, this, uh, this could be the big one because, uh, as you may recall, uh, Dan, I've been saying um, within the context of civilization going downhill for the last hundred years, and we can talk about that too and why that's true, but uh, since the financial cataclysm broke over the landscape in 2007-2008, look at it as being a gigantic economic hurricane. And we just passed through the leading edge in 7, 8, 9, and 10. Since then, we've been in the eye of the storm, giant hurricane, giant eye. But now we're entering the trailing edge of the storm. And it's going to be much worse and much longer lasting and much different than the unpleasantness that we'll recall from back in uh, 08, 09, and so forth. Yeah, I, I've, I've kind of come around to that view in the last few days because I, I think we're all going to be, you know, social distancing and things are going to be shut down for longer. I thought that might be a shorter event, but I think that'll be longer. And of course, the longer that goes on, the more are the cries to do something, and the and the bigger those somethings get. That's right. Talk about the second order effects. These idiots. Uh, you know, nobody, no governmental authority or organization wants to be look like it's being caught asleep at the switch. So they're all jumping in on this hysteria, and closing down everything. Uh, and in the ultra-litigious society that we live in today, if, even if you own a restaurant or a gym or a, a business, it doesn't matter, uh, you're induced to close the thing down because somebody's going to sue you if they say that they got this virus because you didn't close down. So it's, it's the nature of society at this point to... Uh, you know, to, to cry wolf. I mean, you know, listen, the ordinary seasonal flu kills 50,000 people a year. Okay, uh, that's tough. But unfortunately, uh, one of the unpleasant side effects of life is death. And worst case, it's said, and nobody knows, because there have only been 8,000 deaths in the whole world so far, uh, as opposed to 50,000 in the U.S. from the seasonal flu, worst case, they're saying, is 500,000. So, okay, that's, that's tough. But, 
is that a reason to totally collapse the economy? Because poverty, which we will see, kills a lot more people than the flu does. So um, now this is this is this is a big deal. This is like the the witch hunts of the 17th century, as far as people going crazy in a on uh, mass. Yeah, and you know, as long as I've I've been really bearish on stocks for about three years, and as long as I've known you, you know, you've been talking about this this rot, this slow rot in civilization, and you've been frequently bearish too. And here we are, you know, you, I feel like I was wrong for a long time. I'm sure, you know, you had to listen to people telling you that you were wrong for a long time. And then all of a sudden you're wrong until you're not. And when you're not wrong, you you wish that you were. I wish I was, I have to mm. say. I mean, I owned put options and lots of them. And I still, I don't, I don't even care. I, I would happily have watched them go to zero for civilization not to fall apart. Yeah, that's right. Uh, you know, we're looking at something, and and it's still very, very early days. So, um, you know, we're we're going into the Greater Depression, which is a term that I believe uh, I coined actually, and um, and the the um, the thing is, is that a depression is a period of time when most people's standard of living drops significantly. And the reason that, there are many reasons, we could have a whole separate conversation about the economics behind all of this. But um, basically, because of the profligate policies of the Federal Reserve, which should be abolished, not changed, should be abolished, it serves no useful purpose. Um, the whole society has been living above its means. And, uh, uh, unfortunately, in order to rebuild capital, we're now going to have to live below our means for some time. In other words, the whole essence of this is you've got to produce more than you consume, and you have to save the difference. But uh, people haven't been doing that. And as the government prints up trillions of new currency units, after we have a perhaps a, a 1929 U.S.-style deflationary collapse, then we're going to go right into a 1923 German-style hyperinflation, which will make it very hard for people to save because people save in dollars, and the dollar is is going to turn into toilet paper. I hate to sound too apocalyptic, but, uh, you know, uh, Dan, things that you expect to happen often take much longer than you think, to actually, to get underway, which, of course, you and I have both noticed. But once they get underway, they happen much, much more quickly than you could have imagined. And that's what we're seeing right now. Yes. You know, you mentioned you're really referring to debt destruction and then capital reformation has to take place. But that's been one of the massive screw ups. One of the massive fallacies of our age is that the economy ought to be measured in spending and not in capital formation, isn't it? I mean, isn't that what that's that's part of the myth that that is propagated that sort of gets you to all the other policies, right? We must spend, therefore we must print, therefore we must bail out, et cetera, et cetera. You're absolutely correct. The um, all of these so-called economists 
which populate the government and corporations and organizations, they're not economists. They're political apologists. They're, they're soothsayers. They're hacks. They have really no understanding of what actual economics is, which is a description of the way the world works, not a prescription of the way they think the world ought to work. Um, yeah, it's... Uh, it's it's uh, it's it's not good. Uh. <laughs> it's not, but you know, and the way the world works, it 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 sort of it rankles them. It 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 rubs against their sensibilities because it's the um, who was that fellow who wrote uh, Bernard Mandeville, the grumbling hive, right? The world is mm. a grumbling hive, and that that doesn't sit well with the intelligentsia, right? So they criticize it and they say we're all greedy pigs and capitalist pigs and so forth, and we need to be throttled. And the throttling is purportedly to help, you know, the less fortunate among us, and, and it makes life worse for them. And the whole thing, it just it kind of goes downhill from there. As soon as you look at the grumbling hive and don't appreciate it for what it is, you're sunk. Yeah, it's, um, <clears throat> this is ingrained in U.S. society at this point, because for the last couple of generations, Everybody has felt you got to go to college, you got to go to college, which is an idiotic meme to start with. And then when they go to college, which is totally dominated by uh, Marxists and Keynesians and socialist horrible people, uh, and I speak as somebody who is a trustee of two separate colleges, so I know what I'm talking about from boots on the ground. So kids uh, who are sponges at that stage in life, and it's true in high school too, they've captured the high schools, even the grade schools, uh, are inculcated with all of these really poisonous ideas. And it's hard to get rid of them. It's hard to unlearn them. So uh, yeah, things are, gonna, things are gonna get worse. And people think the best and brightest go into government, but that's not true. Actually, it's the worst kind of people that go into government uh, that people uh, have, have such trust in. They're, they're not people that know anything about controlling physical reality. Uh, they're interested, and they only know about controlling other people. So this is really a formula for disaster. I mean, it's, 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 uh, there are about a thousand things, strands, that we could pull any one of them and, and have an hour-long conversation about it. This is, this is actually fascinating to think that we may actually, right now, be at the start of not just the biggest thing since the unpleasantness of 1929 to 1946. Uh, this could be the biggest thing since the founding of the U.S. Yeah, I agree. And it took a very smart Brit named Ralph Powell to bring me around to that viewpoint. We had him on the program, and he he was he, he expressed that view, and and I have to I have to agree. It's it's interesting though, Doug. I was thinking about I like to think well of my fellow man, and I know you do too. And I, I'd like to, but I, I don't. But I don't. I'm sorry to cut you off, Dan. No, no, okay, okay, fair enough, fair enough. I don't want to put words in your mouth at all, but I, I like to to think well of my fellow man. And I, I realize that he mostly has a problem of scale. For example, at the scale of my household, I may be seen as a hopefully benevolent dictator. And at the scale of interactions with individuals, I may be seen as 
quite the altruist and quite the uh, whatever you want to call it these days. I mean, I would call it an altruist or even a collectivist at the scale of a few friends or something. But at the scale of a society, people, they, they lose their bearing and they, they can't handle scale. And I think that's one of the problems that it goes through all humanity. It's, it's just inherent in being a human being. You know, you feel for someone in trouble and therefore you want to help them. And therefore you quickly make this really horrible leap from let's not infringe upon others, persons and property to infringe however you wish to help whoever you wish. And we get it. I think we get in trouble there. <laughs> we definitely, we definitely do. And talking about scale, it's that uh, there are about a billion people in the world right now, and they're mostly living in cities. And uh, when that's the case, it makes it much easier for mass hysteria to break open when people are in close proximity. And over the last hundred years, uh, government has become very, very important. It, it, it's, 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 it's a witch's, a witch's brew. Uh, I'm not sure how this is all going to come down. Well, it may wind up in a political revolution because we are in an election year after all. And uh, it appears that the Democrats, I mean, I, I knew they were stupid, but the best they can do is come up with a, a, a senile, mildly demented old uh, thief in the form of, of um, what's his name, Biden, so you've got your choice between that and Donald Trump, who's a cultural conservative. I'll give him that much, and I appreciate that. He'd like to see the U.S. Um, in its go back to the days it was domestically. Leave it to Beaver, father knows best, before it became a multicultural domestic empire, which is what it is right now. Uh, so it can't be held together. In fact, I think the U.S., uh, certainly over the next couple of generations, is likely to fall apart into several different countries, which actually is a good idea. Uh, but but he's, he's likely to act like a real authoritarian, which is the way he is, with his zero understanding of economics, uh, you know, added into the witch's brew. So these are your two choices. This is, this is really dangerous. You know, you mentioned the U.S. breaking up, Doug. I think that's another one of my scale problems, because I don't believe that nation states are a good idea. I think that's Large nation states, it's just, there's a non-starter there for me. It took me a long time to figure that out. Folks in New York can't tell folks in California how to live, period. No, no. No, the idea of a nation state, uh, and they've all become uh, domestic multicultural empires, which, which is, I think, a, a more accurate description of the situation uh, in many countries, certainly the United States. Uh, they're a bad idea. And let me go further. <clears throat> A democracy uh, is a bad idea. It's a, it's a fine idea for uh, a few friends deciding what to have for dinner or what movie to see, although it's hard enough even just with a few friends with common values to decide those things. But when you have a democracy, it really just becomes mob rule 
dressed up in a coat and tie. And uh, as, as, you, as we're saying all around the world today, in just about every country, uh, the mob is voting for a strong leader. Uh, you know, this is true in Brazil, it's true in the Philippines, it's true in China. It's, pick a country, any country, it, Russia, uh, a strong man, the U.S. for that matter, a strong man gets in office and people like the idea of somebody that'll you know, keep a lid on things. So uh, democracy is also going to be debunked. Uh, the problem is, and cut me off here if I'm rapping too much, it's that uh, we're, uh, we're on the cusp of not just a financial catastrophe, that's obvious, but an economic catastrophe, the Greater Depression, but it's going to be a political catastrophe too. And it could turn into something like the French Revolution in 1789 or the Russian Revolution in 1917. Uh, and that's really dangerous because after the revolution occurs, it doesn't get better, even though it was good to get rid of the old regime. Good. But then it gets worse because they got Robespierre in the case of the French, and they got Lenin, and then Stalin in the case of the uh, Russians. And that could happen anywhere. It could happen here or there where you are. I'm in Uruguay. Yeah, so you mentioned mob rule, and I, I immediately thought, you know, true. And, and we, humanity, we've known this for at least 2,000 years, right? We, the, the ancient Greeks knew this, or at least one of them did. Aristotle. And why don't we, you know, I, I remember, this reminds me of something, Doug. What I remember hearing a story of the folks who knew Ayn Rand when she was writing Atlas Shrugged. And one of them was a very, at the time, very naive fellow named Leonard Peikoff. And he thought six months after Atlas Shrugged came out, which made all these same criticisms of society, he thought everything was going to be good. Everybody was going to figure it out and everything was going to get better and we were going to have a laissez-faire society and people were going to be productive and happy and rationally self-interested and all the rest of it. But, uh, you know, six months, how about 2,000 years? I mean, we, we just don't... What is it about us? We just don't seem to get it. Yeah. It's, Are we that um, desperate to feel secure? Well, I don't know. It, it depends on the level to which we want to uh, dig. I mean, maybe, just maybe, I have absolutely no um, proof or even indication that this is true. But for all I know, maybe this is a prison planet where everybody here has been sent here from a distant part of the galaxy for major crimes and dis misdemeanors as, as, as punishment. And perhaps you and I are like the trustees in this prison. And just thank God we're not down in the hole like people in uh, Africa and India. So, I mean, that's an extreme uh, explanation of why this place is so crazy. But I can think of, I can think of other. I'm going to handle, incidentally, I'm going to handle this problem that you just brought up, Dan. Uh, speculator was my first novel, um, Drug Lord the Second. They're both very good assassins. Loved them both. Out. Excellent books. Loved them. Couldn't get enough. Ah, thank you. Thank you, thank you. Well, you're going to like Assassin, but um, 
in the final novel, uh, which is, I think, going to be called Apocalypse, uh, our hero, Charles Knight, decides that about 80%, this is a, a Pareto's Law number, the 80, old 80-20 rule, uh, of the human race, uh, just suffer from a serious genetic defect. It's called envy, socialism, collectivism, the kind of thing that people like Krugman and this guy pick a crappy economics book that they all suffer from. And it's, it's like a genetic disease. So I think I hate to, I hate to um, do a reveal early on, but uh, yeah, it's probably genetic, uh, quite frankly. It's bred into people the way uh, pit bulls tend to be aggressive and Irish setters tend to be dumb and poodles tend to be smart. It's the same kind of thing. So, Doug, let's talk about the books because as long as I've known you, you've been telling me about this series of books. And I was so hoping that, you know, that you would do it. And, and you started doing it. I read Speculator. I loved it. I read Drug Lord. I loved it. Can't wait for Assassin. Maybe you could tell our listeners the idea behind this series of books. Mm. Oh, thank you, Dan. Everybody likes to likes to give a commercial for what they're doing. I'll, I'll take advantage of that. Thank you. Um, the it, it's a series of seven novels, and in which one of the themes is I'm trying to reform the unjustly besmirched uh, reputations of highly politically incorrect occupations, like speculator. Our hero, Charles, goes to Africa, gets involved, doesn't get involved, he profits from uh, a gold mining scam, gets involved in a bush war. Then in Drug Lord, uh, it shows that you can be a good guy as a speculator. Then in Drug Lord, he becomes a drug lord, dealing in both DEA and FDA-regulated drugs. And in both of those books, he has many, many millions of dollars stolen from him by the government, so he's pissed off. And he decides that there are some people that just need killing an assassin. But he finds that that's like pulling shark's teeth. It's pointless. And also it's somewhat unsavory, unesthetic to have to take these horrible people out, even if they get what they deserve. So he's accused of being a terrorist. And... Um, I have lots of views on terrorism as a method of warfare. You can be a good guy as a terrorist. Yes, yes, I know. Uh, I'm a freedom fighter, you're a rebel, he's a terrorist. But So it's a matter of definition. So he goes back to Africa, and uh, after he's a terrorist, then he has to become a warlord. He goes back to Africa because when they're hunting you as a terrorist, uh, you're in big trouble in today's world. Uh, so it's best to go to a chaos zone. So if you ever get a cruise to being a terrorist, go to a war zone. That's what Charles does, and he becomes a warlord. And here I reform the unjustly besmirched occupation of a warlord to show that um, it can be a good guy. And he turns this mythical country in West Africa, Gondwana, uh, from a shithole uh, in all the countries in Africa, uh, I'm sad to say, are shitholes, and they're getting worse because they all live on foreign aid. But that's a whole other conversation. 
So he turns it into Singapore on steroids. And here I talk about one of my hobbies, which is going to third world countries and talking to preferably the military dictator about how they can turn their place around, make it into Singapore on steroids. And that leads me to Antichrist, where they think he's a god. And here I get to do my thing on religion, which I think will be fun and will gain me lots of new enemies. And then the last thing after Antichrist, uh, which is number six, is Apocalypse, number seven. So it's a fun series, and they're getting better as they go along. So anyway, everybody get on Amazon and buy your copy. Don't fall behind. <laughs> I, I, I agree. Everybody get on Amazon and buy your copy because I, they're, I, I frankly like, you know, when somebody, you know, says they're going to write a book, it's like you really pray it's going to be good. I've read your other books, your nonfiction work. So I thought, well, I know he can write. But you also got somebody, John Hunt, to, to help you write these. And the two of you together, wh whatever you're doing, it works. Because, for example, I mentioned Ayn Rand. And, you know, <clears throat> Atlas Shrugged is a great book, but it's long. And the speech at the end is like 105 pages or so. And I think you work similar ideas in a much more exciting and compelling and readable fashion. And I was really just grateful for that. And, and everyone who reads these will learn a lot. You'll learn a lot about economics, morality, et cetera, life. So, yeah, I'm, I'm happy to uh, stump for your books, man. Happy to be a, be a commercial for your books. I really appreciate that, Dan. And, of course, uh, as Rand uh, believed, and she was correct, um, there are many things you can say in the form of fiction that you really dare not say in the form of nonfiction. Of course, on the other hand, um, Rand's Atlas Shrug has turned from fiction into nonfiction as, as it developed. But I've always held that science fiction generally is a much, much better predictor of the future than any think tank or NGO or people that do this type of thing. Uh, I, I think that's a factual statement. Are you aware of the uh, Dean Koontz book that, that named, it was years ago, I think it was in the 1980s, and it named a virus coming out of Wuhan, China in the year 2020? No. Is that a fact? Wow. Yeah. Amazing. Well, whoever the publisher is uh, of that uh, volume is going to have to... Uh, get on the stick and reissue and re-promote it. I'll have to I'll have to look that up myself. Absolutely. Yeah. You know, this is uh, this is kind of mentioning that. Uh, it's that uh, there have been um, memes circulating about this having been uh, an artificial virus created by the US military or by the Chinese or all kinds of conspiracy theories. I don't know what the facts are. Oh, not sure anybody does. But um, I think about World War III sometimes because um, the 8 billion chimpanzees on this planet do like to um, get on opposite sides of the watering hole from each other and start hooting and panting. Uh, so, yeah, we're going to have World War III. And... Um, the question is what nature will it be. And I've said for many years 
that uh, the F-22s and F-35s and B-23s, the replacement for the B-2, M-1 tanks, this is all crap. Uh, these things are about as valuable as cavalry and battleships uh, before uh, World War II. Uh, World War III is going to have a very big biological component uh, for lots of good reasons. Um, you can tailor make it uh, against uh, another racial group, which is likely to be the Chinese at this point, uh, or, well, that, you know, that turnaround is fair play. Uh, depends on who starts it. And you got plausible deniability, and it's better than a neutron bomb because biowars won't destroy all the capital, uh, at least the physical capital, but although most capital is intellectual today, in, in point of fact. Uh, it's a low cost. Anybody can, anybody can become a major biological warfare player. Uh, you don't have to be a superpower. So I think we can plan our lives around that. So this um, Wuhan virus is, is um, a shade of things to come, I fear. I wish I could really say you're absolutely dead wrong. I really I do. do. <laughs> I want to. I want to be that guy. I want to. I want to say no, 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 no. Could be, you know, and give you a list of reasons. Well, no, I'd, I'd be anxious to hear that because, you know, I'm not looking forward to that anymore. I'm that I'm looking forward to the Greater Depression because, uh, as as Richard Russell once famously said, in a depression, everybody loses. The winner is just the person that loses the least. And that's no fun. No, that doesn't sound like a lot of fun. Although it really rams home some of the principles that we've talked about for, for years when telling people what to do with their money. And rule number one, don't lose money. Rule number two, see rule number one. That'll, <laughs> that'll help you uh, lose the least. Well, you know, it's interesting. Uh, watching... Um, being in the, in the newsletter business myself, well, I'm not really, because they're kind of putting me out to pasture because they don't like the things that I say. It doesn't sell newsletters during a bull market. Uh, they'll, you know, they'll bring me uh, my publisher, uh, which I don't know, it's a division of the same people that publish you too. Anyway, it doesn't matter. Uh, yeah, when, when, it's real gloom and doom and all that. Then they'll ask me to come out and say these things, which is really, really, because that's when people want to hear about it. But it's really stupid because um, you, you can tell with all these trading services and touting high-tech stocks and make 312,263% on some, you know, ridiculously small investment. This is a sign of the, this is a bell ringing at the top of the market. And I know you've, you've diagnosed this accurately too. So this is, it's, it's perverse. Yeah, it makes me wonder like what, what our business is gonna look like in 10 years, if it's still gonna be here and if we're still gonna be doing similar things. I feel like, I mean, I hate to be self-serving, self-servingly optimistic, but I feel like there is, there is such a thing as reality. And if you respect it and tell people to do something like, you know, I told them, I said, you better hold a bunch of cash. You better have cash and gold. You know, and you, you can buy stocks if you want to, but you better have cash and gold because, you know, let's face it, even even right now, gold is is getting hit in dollar terms, admittedly, just in dollar terms. And cash is therefore, you know, one of the ultimate diversifiers. 
But those don't sell newsletters either. No, no, no. But um, as far as the stock market's concerned, um, actually, uh, I've always been a specialist. Um, I've always liked mining stocks. Uh, why? Because they're the most volatile class of stocks on the planet. Uh, I mean, a bull market, uh, of which there have been about six or seven, five or six, I don't know, I'll have to look at my notes, since gold was freed up starting or broke away starting in the late 60s, uh, there have been about five or six major gold stock bull markets. And um, each of them has gone, the, the group, all stocks, gold stocks, have gone up about a thousand percent. Some stocks have gone a hundred to one. I've personally owned uh, at least one stock that went a thousand to one. Not a hundred to one, a thousand to one. So this is the kind of stuff that can happen. Not over the course of a lifetime. I'm talking over the course of two or three or four years. So, um, but right now, gold stocks are actually very, very cheap. Very, very, very cheap. Because the all-in sustaining costs, the best way of determining costs uh, in, a, in a mine, uh, are less than $1,000 an ounce for any producing gold mine in the world today, <clears throat> sometimes much less. Meanwhile, the costs are going down because with oil having collapsed to $27 a barrel, probably going lower, another discussion, uh, their costs are dropping even while gold is gonna go to the moon, uh, finally, because it's the only financial asset that's not simultaneously somebody else's liability. And counterparty risk is going to be gigantic with all the debt in the world, most of which won't be paid, uh, which is yet another thing to talk about for a long time. It is It is another thing to talk about for a long time. we got a lot of deep subjects here. Now, we, we, could, we, could, we, could, we, we, we could wrap on for <clears throat> several days, actually. Uh, but one of the nice things, I guess, about the world being locked down is all you can do is sit around and talk. We can do our own uh, Decameron, actually. Uh, maybe not as amusing as Boccaccio's version, but uh, we, could, we could do it because everybody's got a lot of time on their hands. No place to go, nothing to do. Just watch the world fall apart. You know what's happening? Dan, we're seeing the second law of thermodynamics, uh, the law which conquers everything. It's, it's one of the very, very few laws of any type that I believe in. Uh, it's the law that says everything winds down. Entropy conquers all. And you're seeing it right before our very eyes uh, in America and all over the world. Right. So the second law of thermodynamics about the total entropy of a system being mm. maintained. Thermodynamic equilibrium. Exactly. Unless there's an outside input of new energy to keep the ball rolling, as it were. But um, not only are there no new, well, except for science and technology advances in that. But one of the problems that we have there <clears throat> is, that, <clears throat> is that science, well, not in all respects. Biotech is, is a special case, uh, and there are others. But... Most big science today, things like the the, um, the Hubble telescope and the the, the 
the the the CERN collider and things like that. These are billion dollar projects. And if capital is destroyed, you can't afford that kind of science. So even science and technology could slow down. I'm not predicting a new dark age, although anything is possible. But uh, you know, this this is quite an upset that we're looking at. It is. I I, I can't predict a new dark age, as you put it, either. I I feel like one of the things I learned from an economist named Julian Simon is that, sure, there, there's a new mouth to feed every time someone is born, but there's a new brain that thinks. And, mm-hmm. the, you know, the more, the more people, the better in general, which goes counter to what, you know, the average economist will tell you. And, you know, resources in a local area can be overwhelmed in the short term, but generally speaking, the more people, the better. So I think as long as we as a, the human race continue to grow, Maybe I'm too much of an optimist. The better it ought to get is the worst. The worst I can say, the most dire uh, expression I can say, th- it ought to rather than it definitely will. <laughs> well, I, I completely agree with you, of course. What you said is absolutely accurate, uh, in my opinion, Dan. Uh, there are some circumstances in, at large, though, that somewhat mitigate uh, that optimism, it's that all of these new brains that are being born are being miseducated in government schools where they're learning all kinds of destructive things. And, you know, uh, we might next have a guaranteed annual income for everybody. You know, where that capital comes from is a, a mystery that they, uh, that's insoluble. And you treat people like children, which is what that's all about, and they'll act like children. Uh, Absolutely. So, you know, that's not good. So the wrong ideas, uh, teach them to act irresponsibly. Um, I don't know. Um, Yeah, I mean, but basically, basically you're right. And ultimately, uh, after we get through this, uh, you know, we'll advance to colonizing the planets, and then ultimately, I think, other star systems. And you know, uh, so it'll be a it'll be a story with a happy ending, or or perhaps, hopefully, not an unhappy ending, until the universe itself is subject to the second law and goes into heat death. But no point talking about that because that's that becomes a cosmically gloomy conversation, and, and no point in that. It does, yeah. Pretty sure I won't be around for that one. That one too. So, <laughs> <laughs> you know, unless who knows, who knows what what you know, some biotech might be working on right now, and I will be around for that. I don't know. Not sure well, I want to be. Listen, I've, I've said for years that. Um, if, if we can hold on another, because I'm a few years older than you are, but if I can hold on, in my case, I think another 20 years, there's a, a sporting chance that I can trade my body in for, well, I'll take Bruce Jenner's just before he won the decathlon. That would do. Uh, and it may be technologically <laughs> yeah. possible. If, if Ray Kurzweil is right, 
about the singularity. And I think he is, actually. You know, maybe I think we might differ there. I think I, I don't know if the machines will will sort of take over, if you will. I don't know if that's a fair way to put it. There's something chaotic and unpredictable and wonderful. Maybe I'm being too religious or or otherwise kind of dreamy here, but I think there's something chaotic and unpredictable and wonderful about this um, squishy biological computer between my ears. And I don't think we'll ever build a machine that will completely overtake it. And I'm not talking about my brain, of course, I'm sure there'll be a machine that, that will do better than Dan Ferris. But, you know, just in general, between the machines and humanity, I think humanity will always kind of have the upper hand. Well, I hope so. We've all seen the Terminator. Uh, so, yeah, it's nice to, yeah. it's nice to think. <laughs> but uh, I don't know because, um, you know, it's... No, this is why reality is actually becoming... It may be becoming less mellow <clears throat> as everything speeds up, which, in fact, it is, actually. This Moore's Law has been in has been in existence, in my opinion, not just since the 50s or when Moore formulated it, but for actually a couple hundred thousand years, um, growing slowly, slowly at first, but exponentially. And now we pass the knee, and it's going hyper, obviously hyperbolic. But um, uh, listen, I'm. I'm a solipsist, basically, uh, Dan, and a solipsist, one variety, many varieties of it, believes that absolutely anything is possible. Anything that you imagine to be possible can be possible. In other words, it's like in that movie, The Matrix, which was a great movie, incidentally, where the whole world is basically uh, a hologram, a creation of your own mind. So um, I think anything is possible. Maybe there. Maybe there's an infinite number of alternate universes that we can somehow transfer over to another one uh, if things go bad on this little ball of dirt circulating this obscure star in an obscure galaxy, which there are hundreds of billions in the universe. Then there might be an infinite number of universes. Oh, no. I try not to take anything seriously. You know, when you look at it in these terms, you can't take anything seriously, except paying the rent next week. Of course, there you go. That's well put. And uh, that brings us kind of close to the end of our time here, Doug. I have a, a stock question that I like to ask all our guests, and I'm really, really super curious to see how you might answer it. And that is this. If you could leave our listeners with just one thought, and it's usually something about finance because that's usually the topic. But in your case, whatever you feel like, if I could ask you to leave them with one thought, what might that be? Well, you've kind of taken me by surprise here. Uh, and we've already covered the waterfront pretty much. Um, hmm. Let me say this. I'll say the situation... Is, 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 the situation is hopeless, but it's not serious. And in that context, all you can do is keep your pecker hard and your powder dry, and the world will turn. 
That is perhaps the single best answer to that question that I ever heard. And it doesn't surprise me, Doug, that it came from you. Thank you for that. Brilliant. <laughs> uh, well, I'm sorry. so Dan, it I'm, sounds like. I'm, yeah. No, go ahead. I, I was just going to say, I'm so sorry that it's been years since we've spoken because it's a pleasure chatting with you. Uh, and you as well, Doug. It's been way too long. And hopefully we'll get past all this this business that's going on in the world and uh, or not and we'll see each other anyway <laughs> and talk again soon and the invitation is always open to come down here and hang out uh, on the estancia and uh, we got plenty of cows and chickens and pigs and and all kinds of stuff here so you'll be well fed anyway sounds wonderful i am an idiot if i don't take you up on that <laughs> All right, Tug. Thanks a lot. And man, great talking with you. And, and I hope we'll talk again real soon. Okay, Dan. Super. Thanks. All right. Bye-bye for now. Okay. We got a lot of stuff in the mailbag and I'm going to get through each one. There's a lot of longer ones and I'm, I'm not going to be able to read those. Unfortunately, I want to get to as many as possible today as quickly as possible. So right into feedbackandinvestorhour.com with your comments and questions and politely worded criticisms and suggestions on how to get through this crisis that we're all in. And I will promise you I will read every single one of them and I will respond to as many as possible. First one today is from Mark S. Hi, Mark. Good to see you writing in. I, uh, we exchange thoughts on Twitter frequently. And so Mark's basic message here is, he says, gold is a relatively new holding for me, and I've been inspired to hold it from you and other editors at Stansberry Research. I've been wondering how it will behave in a market panic like we're having. Interesting that at first it went up when the stock market was down, but now it seems to be just going down with everything else, although admittedly gold is still up year to date as I write this. Thanks for continuing to express confidence in the metal that eventually it will turn around. He says, also, I'm probably guilty of thinking the virus will not be as bad as the worst case projections, but it's good to hear a voice of reason to remind me that maybe I could be wrong. Keep calm and carry on, I guess, Mark S. I have nothing to add to that, except this. I think we're, we're still in this liquidation phase with gold, and I absolutely do not believe that lasts. Like I said, the go-to move of government will be to weaken the currency. It is guaranteed to happen, and I think gold really shines in that environment. Next one is from Vanetta G, and Vanetta G says, is it possible to totally lose everything you have in both types of funds? In other words, can it go down to zero? Now, Vanetta, I don't know what you're talking about here. I'm going to take a wild guess that you mean stocks and bonds. Technically speaking, yes. Will it happen? Your guess is as good as mine. I suspect not. That's why I'm counseling plenty of cash and the use of trailing stops. We started using trailing stops in extreme value within just the past year. And I think it turned out well. It is turning out well. Robert H. says, So what has happened to the absolute biggest gain in stocks? Meltdown and drained out. Not such a good call, Robert H. Robert, you, you're not talking about me. I didn't predict any such thing. I, uh, you must be talking about somebody else. Hoyt says, is it necessary to throw in political commentary about the U.S. response to the Wuhan coronavirus? Stick to the data rather than unsubstantiated wild predictions. Italy is not the USA. One could regard the recent market crash as an incredible buying opportunity. Hoyt, yeah, 
if you think it's a buying opportunity, you do you, man. I'm not there yet. Uh, and I think you're right. Italy is not the USA. I was wrong on the call for more government. I, I've covered that, and I freely admit that I went over the line there. Um, but, you know, effectively, we better be, we better be all <laughs> isolating ourselves or this thing will continue to spread, period. And then Joanne R. expresses similar thoughts. She says, seriously, I think coronavirus is mostly a concern for 80, 90-year-olds with some risk for 70, 80. The media is blowing it all out of proportion from the medical reviews I've read. You are helping them. Four major research labs say it's an engineered virus. China with help from Russia. Then Russia torpedoes our oil prices. Iran is mad. They could have, some, they could have something to do with it. And Hong Kong is now quiet, so China doesn't care who they kill. I'm not sure what all that means exactly, but you are telling me and you, and you say we are not underreacting, we are overreacting. The deaths are way under influenza each year, Joanne R. says. And I think the comparison to influenza is completely off the mark. We know about influenza. You can get an influenza shot, for God's sake. People are still getting on cruise ships with this coronavirus. It is, it is between, I don't know, I've seen 10 and 50 times more lethal than the flu. Okay? Period. Nothing else need be said. There's your data from the other guy who was from Hoyt, I think it was. Okay, so Millie H. says, Dan, you sound like a liberal leftist Democrat. Liberal leftist Democrat politicizing the coronavirus. I hope not. <laughs> I don't think I do. Robert H. says, so the bull market is over, but Steve Sugarwood says the melt-up will resume in some number of months. That must mean the resumption of the melt-up will be a new bull market. Is that how you see it? Not exactly, Robert. I think we're in a bear market that could go on for longer than anyone currently understands. Um, and we, you know, there are other, other emails like, like all of the ones I've read so far, so I can't read them all. Rocco asks, why did you not comment on the recent market crash? Not sure what you mean, Rocco. We've been all over this. I'm not really sure what you mean, but it's hilarious. Paul M. is one of the people who, he, he wrote a really wonderful, eloquent email, and he called me out on this thing. And I'll just read the one little section. He says, he says, I now have heard several Stansberry associates say that this latest pandemic has been handled poorly by the United States government. I'm at a loss as why investment advisors say this. Isn't it the common belief among investment pros that government should try to stay out of the market in most situations? I've heard at Stansbury that the government has been slow to react to the latest crisis and they need to have more corona testing in place. And then he goes on to raise, you know, the objections that I've already responded to. You're spot on, Paul. Totally agree. I, 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 was, a little, I was wrong there. And then we have a politely worded criticism from Daniel G., who complained that the last podcast was too short. I will do my best to make them longer, Daniel. You're on, buddy. I'm taking you up on it. Let's see. We, we got a lot of things here. I, I think that's about it. Everything else is pretty much in the vein of everything I've already read. And one guy says he's sick and tired of reading our promotional emails. And, you know, you're not the first person to say that. I am too. We all are. Everyone is. Somehow, I think our business is going to change quite a bit over the next few months. But, you know, for now, we're, we're doing everything we can do. We held a special event earlier this week, and we just kind of got on the got on the horn with each other. There were four of us on the call, or actually there were about, 
I think there were six or seven of us. There was a bunch of us. Myself, Steve Sugarud, David Eifrig, Mike DiBias, Greg Diamond, Brett Aiken, Austin Root. I think that's everybody, maybe, uh, I want to say, who was on the call. And we were just talking. We weren't trying to sell anything. So I think you're going to see a lot more of that. And you should, right? You have a, you have a right to expect that. And you will hear it from me and you will hear it from others at Stansberry. Hey, look, man, look, my 401k has been obliterated too. I'm right next to you. You know, I had, I, I've got stock funds in my 401k. I just put my wife's 401k into, she didn't have any gold in there. And I put it into, I think one of the, one of the publicly traded gold ETFs. And, you know, those things haven't behaved the way we wanted to, and we wanted them to. So uh, we're, we're all in the same boat and we are here for our, for our listeners and our readers. So that's another episode of the Stansberry Investment Hour. It's my privilege to come to you this week and every week. Go to www.investorhour.com. You can listen to every single episode we've ever done. You can get a transcript for every episode we've ever done. Sometimes it takes a few days for the transcript to arrive for the latest episode. You just click on the episode, scroll all the way down, and that's where the transcript will be when it arrives. Go to iTunes, subscribe to Stansberry Investor Hour on iTunes, and give us a like. And that like will push us up in the rankings and it'll attract more like-minded folks like yourself to write in and ask me lots of good questions and send me lots of thoughtful, um, politely worded criticisms like we heard today. Thank you very much. Tough times, man. I'm really at a loss half the time for what to say to you. But you know what? I'm going to keep reading and thinking and looking at what's happening. And we're going to do our very best for you here at the podcast and at Stansberry. And with that, I bid you adieu for this week, and I'll talk to you next week. Bye-bye for now. Thank you for listening to the Stansberry Investor Hour. To access today's notes and receive notice of upcoming episodes, go to InvestorHour.com and enter your email. Have a question for Dan? Send him an email at feedback at InvestorHour.com. This broadcast is provided for entertainment purposes only and should not be considered personalized investment advice. Trading stocks and all other financial instruments involves risk. You should not make any investment decision based solely on what you hear. Stansbury Investor Hour is produced by Stansbury Research and is copyrighted by the Stansbury Radio Network.